look at the book of Revelation, and uh, we'll continue our, our uh, introduction this morning to get to the material that we didn't cover last Sunday. But um, I do want to say this, that uh, afterward, after last Sunday's sermon, which was admittedly challenging because I had to try and summarize the reasons for all the different views on the, the book of Revelation, I, I went to Rodney and I asked him, uh, you know, did, did you understand what I said? And uh, this was his response. He smiled at me and, and just said, oh yeah, everything, everything. Um, actually, I got this picture from Glenna. She, uh, she uh, every so often Heather and her spend time together. Heather comes home with so many good stories. So I can imagine what it's like at home. She's, she's telling him, you know, how her day went, and Rodney's like, yeah, smiling, and, and yeah, so <laughs> we'll move on to better things. So I trust, I trust you understood a little bit more than Rodney did. Uh, it is a challenge to, uh, to summarize uh, all the different views on the, the book of Revelation and all the opinions that have been put in print or even just merely been stated, or even that you may come across as you open the book of Revelation from time to time and read through it and, and how perhaps even your understanding uh, changes over time and you, you wrestle with it. And that's why we want to uh, get into this book uh, over the next several months. We're going to cover the first three chapters first, uh, go on to some other things, and then come back and keep working our way through this very, very important book. So last week we looked at the question, how do we interpret the book of Revelation? But what I want to do this morning is answer the question, why do we study the book of Revelation? But to get there, first of all, I want to read the introduction to this book, and it certainly sets our minds in the appropriate direction. Here the Apostle John writes these words, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, 
the Almighty. So the question is, why do we study the book of of Revelation, especially with all of those challenging interpretive approaches? And if I could just go back to that for just a moment to once again kind of set the stage and pose the question with so many different approaches, why do we even bother with this book? We're going to get to that. But let me summarize very quickly what we covered last time. When we talk about the approach to the book of Revelation, there are generally four approaches. Now, granted, there are mixtures of these approaches, but these are the four main ones that have been articulated throughout the history of the interpretation of this book. And what is helpful is for us to put it on a timeline, beginning with the the time of Christ represented there on the screen with the cross, his first advent, Secondly, with respect to the time in which the book was written, and as we talked about last time, and we'll talk about more as we get into the book, there's different views on on that, whether it was written around AD 66 or whether it was written in AD 96. And then to put the next point in time as our present time, where we are at today in the church age, and then also look at that in terms of the final point in time that we can use to orient our thinking here, and that's the last judgment, and then what follows is the new heavens and the new earth. We, we looked at the preterist view, preter meaning past, and the preterist view holds that the, the, the chapters from chapter 4 to chapter 20, everything from 4 verse 1 to the end of the millennial reign, and then you have the reference to the, the last judgment and the start of the new heavens, and the new earth, that that is taken to have been fulfilled all in the past. It is fulfilled all in the past. And so it takes this as fulfilled generally, uh, most would take it as fulfilled by or ultimately in the, the destruction of the temple in AD 70. That's the preterist view. And what it does is it essentially spiritualizes everything in the book until you get to chapter the, the middle of chapter 20 and into 21 and 22. The historicist view, which doesn't really have expression in our day, it was popular during the time of the Reformation because then especially it was very popular to label the Pope as the Antichrist. But the historicist view says that the book of Revelation is actually, in a sense, prophecy but it's prophesying of all of human history. And so the challenge is there to, to look at the newspaper, to look at what's happening, and to correspond the details in the newspaper or in the broader uh, events of history with what you read in the book of Revelation. And so you can predict Mussolini, World War II, different popes become different antichrists. The problem is, is that, that that interpretation then is constantly being revised as time goes on. Then there's the idealist view. The idealist view says that there is no real prophecy in the book of Revelation until you come to the prophecy of the last judgment and the new heavens and the new earth. That will be taken literally, but everything prior to that is ideal. In other words, it's just describing a transcendent reality of the battle between good and evil, between the righteousness of God and his angels and the unrighteousness of the devil and all of those who rebel against God. And so, in a sense, at any time in the, in the experience that you may have or in the church's experience, at any time, everything 
in the book of Revelation from chapter 4 to 20 is happening instantaneously. It's like, a, 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 in a sense, a, a full uh, fulfillment, ideological or, or, or spiritualized, all in one moment. It's not meant to be any kind of truly prophetic book. And then you have the futurist view, and that's the view that, that we'll be teaching here and that we hold here. And that view is that the contents of Revelation chapter 4 through 20 are future from the present time, where we're at. And it's future from the standpoint of the church age. So wherever we're at in history, and we don't know when that blue column there, as you look at it, or the blue line, when that's going to start as it relates to chapter 4, we don't know when that's going to be, but it is still, at this moment, a, a future reality. And that's the futurist view. Now you look at that and say, well, how do we make sense of the book of Revelation? Does it really matter? And maybe what we need to do really is just ignore the book of Revelation. And certainly that has been a a tendency even within church history. The early centuries of the church took a futurist perspective. The early fathers, up until about the middle of the third century, were dominantly futuristic, You can trace it back to Papias, an early church father who was a disciple of John. I did some reading in Justin Martyr. Justin Martyr also was an early church father, a famous apologist, and he expresses a futurist view. Irenaeus, another important church figure of the second century, he takes a solid futurist view. You have others as well during that time who take that futurist view. But what happens? Around the middle of the third century, things begin to change. Particularly, there was a man by the name of Dionysius of Alexandria. This is middle of the, of the, uh, of the 300s, uh, excuse me, the 200s, third century, middle of the third century. Certain man by the name of Dionysius of Alexandria. And he didn't like that futurist thinking. And so he began to, to, to throw some shade on the book of Revelation by being the first one to truly question whether it was John the Apostle who wrote Revelation. And although he did not deny the canonicity of the book, scholars are agreed that he was uncomfortable with the futuristic interpretations that had preceded him and sought to set a different kind of approach to the book of Revelation in place. And so he began to question whether it was John the Apostle who wrote this book. By undermining, even in the slightest way, the authorship, by saying it wasn't attached to that disciple who was close to Jesus, They're set in motion then after him and acknowledged uh, discomfort with the book of Revelation. And that has largely continued uh, to this day in, in many circles. So why should we study the book of Revelation? Let me give you some more contemporary perspectives that would suggest that the book of Revelation is not worth studying Of course, these will come from those who are not Christian, but first of all, a letter from Thomas Jefferson to General Alexander Smith in 1825, he said this of the book of Revelation, it is between 50 and 60 years since I read it, 
i.e., that is, the book of Revelations, he calls it. It's not a proper title, but uh, the book of Revelations. And then I considered it merely the ravings of a maniac, no more worthy nor capable of explanation than the incoherence of our own nightly dreams. One who is a little bit more in our time, Bart Ehrman, if you know anything about Bart Ehrman, he was educated in some very fundamentalist evangelical contexts and apostatized and became a very famous uh, specialist, so-called, in the Bible. He's featured regularly on documentaries on the History Channel as supposedly being the smartest guy as it comes to the Bible. He is nothing of the sort. He is a carnal man to every extent of that term. But this is what he said about the book of Revelation as he describes his, his, uh, his journey from that, that, that uh, reverential approach to the book of Revelation to one of what he calls one of disdain. He says this, quote, I have come to realize that I do not revere, respect, or even like this book anymore. I think it is a horrible depiction of God portraying him as a ruthless tyrant who absolutely detests anyone who does not worship him with all their heart and soul, who wants not just to crush all opposition, but to torture everyone who does not believe in Jesus. My view of Revelation is that it's ruthless, vengeful God who destroys the majority of the human race stands in sharp contrast with the God of Jesus, end quote. Sad testimony to someone who I think was educated at Moody Bible Institute. And that, of course, is a very different approach than what we're taking. And I want to begin our look at five reasons by quoting someone else, a a Lutheran theologian by the name of Joseph Seiss, who was a futurist in terms of the book of Revelation. And he put his finger on the problem quite well when he said this uh, back in the uh, late 1800s. He said this, There is widespread prejudice against the study of the apocalypse. That's the book of Revelation. Though it is the great prophetic book of the New Testament, the last of all the writings of inspiration, a special message from the ascended Savior to his churches on earth and pressed upon everyone's attention with uncommon urgency. There are religious guides sworn to teach the whole counsel of God who make it a merit of not understanding it and of not wishing to occupy themselves with it. So let's look generally at why we need to study this book. Number one, and most, uh, most plainly, most basically, it is the Word of God. The book of Revelation is the Word of God. From beginning to end, this book testifies to its status that it is God's Word. Look at the first verses of this book. As we see that as John records this, he recognizes that he is writing the word of God. He says this in verses 1 to 2. He says, The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. 
And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. And then when you turn to the end of the book, the very last chapter, the final verses of this book, you read this very important conclusion to it as as John records these words in verses 18 and 19. He says, I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. And now he draws back to the words that Moses had added back in, in Deuteronomy to any kind of, any kind of attempt to alter uh, the Pentateuch. John uses that same kind of terminology here as he's moved by the Holy Spirit. He says this, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues which are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the tree of life and from the holy city which are written in this book. It is the very word of God. And as the Word of God, the book of Revelation is to be part of the Christian's spiritual intake. The the book of Revelation is to be what is part of our our array of, of, of spiritual nutrients that we need for living the Christian life. And and, and we see this in, in texts like Matthew 4, verse 4, which quotes Deuteronomy 8, 3, where Jesus said in response to temptation that man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus there, quoting from Moses, is, is stating that we are, as, as children of God, we are to live on all that God has revealed, and not just on portions of it. Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, in the Great Commission, the disciples are specifically commanded to teach everything that Jesus has commanded. Everything. In Colossians 3, verse 16, we are to let the word of Christ, and as we get into the book of Revelation, it is just that, the word of Christ is to dwell richly within us. And in 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, Paul makes this command or this statement about the, the, the nature and purpose of Scripture when he says, all Scripture, all that is properly defined as the Word of God written for us, all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. And where we sit today, we can be confident of this, that unless we have a handle on the book of Revelation, we will not be adequate, and we will not be equipped for the good works that are expected from us in this particular day. We must study this book because it is the Word of God. Secondly, we must study the book of Revelation because it promises blessing to those who study it. It promises blessing. Now, we know this in general, that Scripture pronounces blessing uh, in, a, in that general sense on, on any who would study it. We're familiar very much with Psalm chapter 1 and the opening words to this, the, the book of Psalms. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2, "...how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked." 
nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. Scripture pronounces a blessing on those who meditate on the word of God. Jesus himself said in that interesting dialogue when someone asks who are his real family members, and and he says, my family members are those who know and do the will of God. And he says this, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. So scripture itself, Jesus himself pronounces these general blessings on any who would dedicate themselves to the study of all that is properly called the Word of God. But what we find in Revelation is that Revelation pronounces this blessing very specifically. Go back to Revelation chapter 1 in the opening verses there. In verse 3, we already read it at the beginning, but notice verse 3 in particular. Maybe you didn't notice it the first time, but it begins with one of these Beatitudes. And there's actually seven of them in the book of Revelation. We'll get to them as we go through this book. But here's the first one. And the first one is, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of the prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. John is pronouncing a blessing on those who would take this seriously who would read it, who would hear it, and not just hear it kind of in that you know, empty-mindedness, but hear it with a purpose to doing it, who would heed the things. Or you could translate that as keep the things which are written in it for the time is near. And then when we get to the end of the book, it's not as if that beatitude, that blessing statement only applies to the first three chapters, we get to the end and we get to the sixth of the seven beatitudes, and we come to this statement in chapter 22, verse 7, where Jesus says this, and behold, I am coming quickly, blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy in this book. We can be assured that we will be blessed by reading, studying, and applying this book to our own lives. And often, you know, you'll have people talk about how they're blessed all the time with different things, and, and we should, right? We are to be grateful, we are to be thankful in all things, but in terms of that state of blessedness, John and Jesus himself connected directly to our attitude toward this book. Number three, we study the book of Revelation because it reveals to us Jesus Christ. It reveals to us Jesus Christ. We know that Jesus Christ is the culmination of the revelation of God. We can turn for a moment to the beginning of the book of Hebrews, where the writer there helps us understand the flow of of redemptive history and and how the history of revelation points to this climax in the person of Jesus Christ as he is the ultimate revelation from God. Hebrews 1 verses 1 to 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways, 
In these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. Now, many people will think that the book of Revelation is really all about many different kinds of events that may have happened already or will happen. There are these bowls, these judgments, these trumpets, these work, this work of these, these uh, antichrists and, and so on and so forth, that that's what the book is all about. But in reality, the book is about Jesus Christ. The dominant theme of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ. And we find in this book, when we approach it in a sane manner, we find in this book knowledge of Jesus Christ that is not presented elsewhere in the Scriptures. Now look for a minute back at the beginning of of this book. And and we'll handle this when we get next time to the first three verses of, of Revelation. But notice the first words of this book. It's not the revelations, plural. It's not the revelation to John, as sometimes it is called. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the title of the book. And the term, is, as we'll look into a little bit more, it's, it's a term that sometimes frightens people, but it's, it shouldn't. It's the term apocalypse, or uh, apocalypsis is the original Greek term there that we translate as revelation. And that word, apocalypsis, means to make fully known or to disclose. In other words, the book of Revelation is the disclosure of Jesus Christ. It is the revealing of Jesus Christ. It is making Jesus Christ known beyond what has been previously revealed. And again, notice that it's not merely the making known of Jesus' words or of Jesus' plans, but it is the making known of Jesus Christ himself. And that is what this whole book is all about. And when you look at the book of Revelation, there is so much rich Christology here. We, I can't wait to get into chapter 1. We read of it already, but you read of this vision and, and these descriptions in, in chapter 1. For example, you read of, of him in verse 5 as the faithful witness, firstborn of the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth, the one who loves us, the one who released us from our sins by his blood, the, the one who made us a kingdom, who made us priests the one who deserves glory and dominion. And we read of him, verse 7, as the one who's coming in the clouds that every eye will see, even those who pierced him in all the tribes of men. We read that he's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the Lord God. He is the one who is and who was and who is to come. He is the Almighty. And that is just in a few short verses. And we can understand a little When we keep reading, we get to verse 17, and after this glorious one appears to John on the island of Patmos, John falls on his face like a dead man. That's rich Christology. That's the kind of Christology we need. It's the kind of Christology that solves a lot of our problems. 
We can look to all kinds of ways to try and deal with the sin problem in our lives, this issue and that issue, this circumstantial difficulty and this trial, but what we need is this vision of Christ, the one that will cause us to fall on our face, to forget all of those temporary and vain things and fear this glorious one. We get to chapter 2 to 3, and we see there all the self-descriptions of, of Jesus. Like in chapter 2, verse 1, he is the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. In verse 8, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life. Verse 18, the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze Verse 7, he is the Holy One who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. In verse 14, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning or origin of the creation of God. We get to that great scene in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, and there we come across Christ as the Lamb, such a powerful image is given to us there. And we read this, for example, in chapter 5, verse 12, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And from this point on in the book, the term lamb appears almost 30 times. And and even though we might not realize it, the Christologies, particularly that that is associated with that scene in heaven in chapters 4 and 5, has made it into our, even our music. And we don't realize it comes from Revelation chapter 4 and 5. We can continue. We can skip ahead to the end. We, we see the depiction of Jesus Christ coming in his glory at his second coming in chapter 19. And we see that power that is associated with him, the justice, the vengeance that comes in all pure righteousness. We see his reign in the second or in the millennial kingdom, and, and, and then we see that last judgment, and then we see the description of Christ in the new heavens and the new earth, where there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in that midst. And his bondservants, the bondservants of Jesus, will serve him and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And then the final verses, final chapter, verses 12 to 13, where Jesus says, Behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You see, one of our problems that we face today is that due to an unhealthy, unbalanced diet, one which neglects the book of Revelation, our understanding of the person of Jesus Christ is almost limited to the Gospels and how he appeared at his first advent. And that is, for many, the extent of their understanding of the person of Jesus Christ. 
The book of Revelation has been given to us not to correct anything in the Gospels. It all is true, and it is all what should be in our understanding. But the book of Revelation is added so that we also see Christ for the glorious one that he is. We need, like John and the churches of Asia Minor, in response to all of our challenges and problems and trials, we need to see him for who he really is. And that's why we need the book of Revelation. Indeed, it is a collection, as we will see, of prophecies about the future. But it is a collection that is all centered around the manifestation, the revelation, the disclosure of the person of Jesus Christ. Charles Feinberg said this, Admittedly, no writer on this inestimable volume, speaking of the book of Revelation, can or should claim that he has the final word on this book of Scripture. But this is no reason either to neglect its glorious message or engage in fantastic flights of the imagination. We all do well to realize it is God's final unveiling of the glories of his blessed Son, Our focus must ever be on him in this grand finale. The book is an incomparable Christology in itself. Going back to Joseph Seiss, he said this, and this is the key to the whole book. It is a book of which Christ is the great subject and center, particularly in that period of his administrations and glory designated as the day of his uncovering, the day of his appearing. It is not a mere prediction of divine judgments upon the wicked and of the final triumph of the righteous made known by Christ, but a book of the revelation of Christ in his own person, offices, and future administrations when he shall be seen coming from heaven as he is once seen going into heaven. It is a book of Christ. And so by studying this book, we will enlarge our love and adoration and worship of Jesus Christ. Number four, it is a book which provides vital truth to churches. A book which provides truth to the churches. It is a book for the church age, even though it speaks of that which is still to come. Remember, the, this book was written to churches. He's, John says that in, in 1 verse 4, John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. In this sense, the book of Revelation really is no different than the letter of Peter in 1 Peter, when, as we read this morning in the main worship service, we read those verses that, that Peter writes it to the aliens scattered in Cappadocia and Bithynia and Galatia, all over that region. Peter writes to those churches. In the same way, John, as he is moved by the Spirit, is writing to actual churches. He is providing to these churches the knowledge from God that they need for their situation. And those churches, those actual historical churches, face the same kinds of challenges we in our day face. They're challenges that are indicative of the entire church age. And we're going to look at this when we get into these letters more specifically. We're going to look at a church that had incorrect priorities. The church that was in the city 
of Ephesus, the church where Paul had spent so many years ministering, the church where Timothy then had been and where John himself later in his life had ministered. It was a church that in such a short period of time had come to exhibit incorrect priorities. A church that was under persecution, the church in Smyrna, a church that faced, though it was small, it it faced horrendous oppression from those around it. And it is a kind of church that exists today as well, many parts around the world, as also they, today, those churches facing persecution, need a word from the Lord as to how to, to survive in the midst of such persecution. A church of compromise, where the, the, the throne of Satan was, as, as it'll be described. The church in Pergamum, where there was a massive massive altar built there to Zeus. It was the church of compromise. The church in that city had begun to syncretize with its community. Another church similar to that is the church of Thyatira that was tolerant of immorality. You can look at the problems of the American church today and its tolerance of immorality. Well, it's not the first These churches have existed, and there was one in Thyatira that exhibited all the same kind of features as many churches in this country do today. A church of spiritual apathy, Sardis. We'll find the letter there speaks to that church historically, but it'll also describe the same kinds of problems today. We have also a church that, that faced ostracism, a church that was isolated, ostracized by its community for its stand for Christ. And then a church of self-sufficiency, the Laodiceans, the church that was wealthy, had everything they thought they needed except Christ. And that is a problem we face as well. This book is the response to all of those different problems. In fact, what's interesting to hear as we get into each of those letters, those letters were written not only for the individual churches themselves, because at the end of each of those letters, there is a call that is universal, a call that extends to every church throughout the church age, and it is this. Every letter ends with it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Even though he writes to to Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea, all of them with their very unique situations, the final call of each one of their individual letters is a call to all the churches. All the churches are to heed the contents of these letters. It provides vital truth to the churches. And finally, letter E, it reminds us that the end is near. Number five, the end is near. We share the same kind of problems that these seven churches did in their era, and you can kind of put them under three general categories, three headings. Either it's materialism, cultural compromise, or despair. Materialism is that kind of feeling of self-sufficiency, that everything's going well, this world is really all that matters for us right now, we just need to focus on, on this world, all of our ministry, all of our achievements, all of our accomplishments, 
That's one of the main problems that we see in those seven churches. Another one was cultural compromise. All the the syncretism, whether religious or behavioral in nature, the, the practices. And then there was the feelings of despair by the, the two churches that were faced with the ostracism and the persecution. And the problem in all of those cases is that there's this assumption that things won't change. For the materialists, they're happy. Things will just keep going the the way they are. And they just assume that you're going to wake up tomorrow and it'll just be the same. And you can enjoy all of those earthly things, even in ministry, day after day. This, This won't change. That's the assumption. For those engaged in cultural compromise, the same attitude is there. This won't change, so we might as well embrace it. We might as well just fit in. It's not going to change. Let's just live like they do. And and when you're in Rome, live as the Romans. Or those who are in the midst of persecution think it's not going to change. That that the, 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 the problems, the trials, the ostracism that we face today, the ridicule, the being called the scum of the earth is just going to be there tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day and a year after that and 10 years down the road and so on and so forth. Well, there is a, an important message that Jesus delivers to these churches and to us today that the world in which we live, the world as we know it is coming to an end. It is coming to an end and we need in our day whether it's because of our own materialism, our own compromise, or our own despair, we need to study this to know that it will not always be like this. And it's coming to an end more quickly than we realize. Revelation 1.3, Blessed is he who reads, and those who hear the words of this prophecy, and heed the things which are written in it, And then an important explanation, a justification for this blessing is given in the final clause, for the time is near. The time is near. In other words, what John was privileged to see as a revelatory vision, that disclosure of the glorious Christ and what will come when he returns to this earth, what he was privileged to see, that is going to be made sight for everyone in reality. That time is coming near. We see that same statement in Revelation 22, verse 10. The words of the prophecy which John had recorded were put on sheets of paper and rolled up, but they were not to be sealed shut. In other words, they were not to be kept secret. Instead, The command is given, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. The readers need to to heed this. There needs to be an acknowledgement and an awareness that the end is near. So there is time for repentance, for change and preparation. Revelation chapter 22, verse 7, same concept, but with different language. Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly. Same synonymous idea, not just the nearness of this actual manifestation of the glorious Christ, but here the terminology is quickly. I am coming quickly. In verse 12 of chapter 22, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. Revelation 22 verse 20, yes, I am coming 
quickly. Quickly, quickly, quickly. The time is near. The time is near. And again, whether it's the problem of materialism or compromise or despair, the great need of our day is the recovery of this doctrine of imminency. And that doctrine of imminency refers to the acknowledgement that the coming of Christ, that the details that are referred to in this book are, are near. They're not some far away hope and dream. They are a coming reality. What does imminence mean? We can describe this term, and notice it's I-M-M-I-N-E-N-C-E, imminence, not immanence. Immanence, with an A, refers to nearness and position, but imminence describes the condition of something that could happen at any time or is about to happen. And when it's applied to the second coming, the term means that Christ could return at any moment. And so this book provides the antidote to these problems, materialism, compromise, and despair. And this is what we need today. And in fact, what's, what's, very, uh, what's very important to recognize that as we look at, especially during times of, of tumult and, and rapid change, if the body of Christ is not properly equipped and, and, and educated in what God has revealed about the end times, we find that believers soon form their own eschatology. Everyone has some form of eschatology. We can't avoid that topic, but when we do avoid it in the, in the formal way of not teaching on it, Christians will go and de- determine and develop their own views of how the end needs to be. So we need the book of Revelation as we think of the, the problems that are already here. Speaking of this emphasis on the nearness of the end, again quoting from Joseph Seiss, he says this, Like a magnet, this book of Revelation lifts the heart of the believer out of the world and out of his low self and enables him to stand with Moses on the mount and transfigures him, that is Christ, with the rays of blessed hope and promise which stream upon him from those sublime heights. It is the most animating and the most sanctifying subject's in the Bible. It is the soul's serenest light amid the darkness and trials of the earth. And just in proportion as he who is awake to the great truth of the Savior's speeding coming and is engaged in waiting and preparing himself accordingly, in proportion that he is a better man than the, health, than the half-Christian and the lukewarm, in that same proportion is he who reads, hears, and keeps the words of this prophecy blessed beyond all other people. Great words to remind us of the need of this book in our lives. We need to be those who, as the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy 4.8 said, that we love his appearing his manifestation. 
So those are the five reasons. It is the word of God. It promises blessing on those who study it. It reveals Jesus Christ. It provides vital truth to the church age. And it reminds us that the end is near. Final quote from Joseph Seiss helps us put this all in perspective. He says this quote, If we are interested in the story of the manger and the cross, if we can draw strength for our prayers and hopes by invoking Christ by the mystery of his incarnation, his fasting, his temptation, his agony, and his bloody sweat, if we find it such a precious treasure to our souls to come into undoubting sympathy with the scenes of his humiliation and grief, what should be our appreciation of this book which treats of the fruits of those sufferings and tells only of that wronged Savior's glory and triumphs? and shows us our Lord enthroned in majesty, riding prosperously and scattering to his ransomed ones the crowns and regencies of empire which shall never perish, and celestial blessedness without number and above all thought. It's a great summary of this book, and as we get into it, I trust it'll minister to you immensely. Let's pray toward that end. Father, we acknowledge that important truth about everything that you have said, that we shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth, and that all that is part of this is inspired, is breathed out by you, and is profitable. It makes us adequate It equips us for every good work. It prepares us not only for this life, but for the life to come. We pray that as we begin our study, that you would impact us through these words greatly. That the work of renewal would would run its course in a way that we have not experienced yet to this day. And that it would make us those who, like the Thessalonians, had been saved from their idols not only to serve you, the living and true God, but to wait for your Son from heaven, who will come to rescue us from the wrath that is to come. Make us truly a people that loves your Son and his appearance. We ask this in his name. Amen.